0: Thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. Second World War giving a diamond engagement ring was relatively uncommon now there's a few people in our church who are old enough to remember what that was like only about 20% of couples at that time had a diamond ring now you couldn't imagine an engagement today without one could you it is the first thing that people think about and I have to say that when you go ring shopping you quickly discover that not all diamonds are equal some of them are relatively affordable And others have some eye-wateringly high price tags attached to them. A diamond's value is defined by four things. By the cut, the clarity, the uh, the colour and the carat. And a diamond is taken and thoroughly tested across these four criteria. It's also tested to prove whether it's genuine or not because you can fake diamonds. Over the next five weeks, we're going to work through the book of James under the idea of test of faith. We're going to be closely examining our faith in the Lord Jesus. We're going to put it under the microscope, and we're going to check for flaws and imperfections. We're going to take time to prove its value. This morning, we're going to start by seeing how James describes the trials of life in verses 1 to 12, And then the nature of tests and temptations in verses 13 to 18. And finally, we're going to look at three key tests which James applies that prove whether our faith is the real deal or not. That'll be in verses 19 to 27. Why don't we pray? Lord, we pray this morning that as we open your word, it would be a great encouragement to us. Would you take and use this ancient letter written by James to help us to endure? Lord, would your Holy Spirit please enlighten our minds that we might receive your wisdom. And would you please humble our hearts to be people who hear your word and do what it says. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. James opens this letter with verses that have become very well known to us in the church. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Sounds a bit crazy, really, doesn't it? We know that life is full of trials, but we don't usually think of them as something which should spark joy in us. But James unpacks his logic. He says the trials of faith are giving us an opportunity to persevere, to endure. And that living through those trials helps us live in a way that is obedient to Jesus. He's explaining that this is God at work in us in these times of testing, making us more mature in Jesus. He gives us an example of one of those life's trials in verses 9 to 11 as he talks about poverty and riches. Now, it's interesting that neither the poor or the wealthy are singled out as being under trial. Both will face their own difficulty. The poor will be tempted to think that they are less than others who have more than them, they might believe that they are cursed. They might believe that they've been neglected by God because they don't have very much. Maybe they feel like life's not fair. And when the bank account is empty, the Christian is encouraged to remember God's equality and his special preference to the poor. I think our tendency, if we are broke and struggling, is to feel like we've been forgotten or abandoned by God. But in his kingdom, nothing could be further from the truth. The wealthy undergo a trial where they're tempted to keep on going on amassing more and more at the expense of others. We know that oftentimes, for the wealthy, there's a tendency to grow proud of what has been achieved by standing on our own two feet without any reference to the one who blesses and gives success. The rich face a trial where they must remember the dangers of materialism, which can so easily entangle us and lead us astray. The rich are prone to trust their wealth and their power and forget God. The rich are also tempted at times to insult and abuse the poor instead of looking on them with kindness and impartiality. In life, both rich and poor face trials, says James. He's showing that we all face trials, and you don't need me to tell you that from up here, do you? You've got lists of trials and tests that you've faced in your own lives. Sometimes we face huge pressures, and we feel the heat of life's trials around us. But these tests are not in vain. Heat and pressure form beautiful diamonds. Heat and pressure, the trials of life, create something beautiful in the life of a faithful Christian. They create deeper love for the Lord as we see him at work time and time again in our tests and trials. Just like the heat and pressure form precious diamonds, the heat and pressure of our trials creates a faith of unparalleled beauty and value. And it comes with another reward. Look at verse 12. The crown of eternal life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Withstanding life's trials will see us rewarded with something. Something which isn't just precious but is priceless. It's a never-ending relationship with God where we have been perfected to enjoy him in his presence forever. As we endure though, The prime source of our endurance is not some kind of grim determination to do our duty and collect our reward. It's our love for God that allows us to endure. The God who gives generously with wisdom from above when we ask for it, we're told in verse 5. I think we know what that is meant to look like. We have opportunities to practice this in real life. Think about relationships that you've got with your friends and family. Even those relationships go through hard times, don't they? And sometimes we suffer as a result of those trials. What motivates us to sit through a hospital appointment with a sibling? Why would we help a struggling child by putting some money into their bank account? Why do we look after someone else's kids when we could be sitting at home watching TV with our feet up? Well, it's our love that motivates us to do those things, isn't it? Love is the prime motivator for married couples, for family groups, for parents, for friends. Whether times are hard or easy, it is love that causes us to stick by one another. It is love that should be the prime motivator for our walk with God. As we recognise how much he has given us and how much he will give us in the future, the crown of life, the text tells us. Persevering, enduring, facing the trials of life, living through the heat and pressure can be a joy to the Christian when it is motivated by our love for the Lord Jesus, because we know that living in obedience to his word pleases him and honors him and glorifies him. God grants life, eternal life and righteousness to all who persevere, to all who seek Christ by asking for wisdom and to all who love him. To love God means to confess his name and keep his commandments. The Old Testament makes that so clear to us. James says that God intends trials to strengthen our love for God and our faithfulness to him. Look at verse 17. But sadly, trials don't always produce a diamond-like faith, do they? When facing trials, some people doubt God's goodness and they turn away from him. Instead of growing deeper in faith and love, so that they take hold of the crown of life, they blame God for their troubles and the trials of life, and they turn their backs on him instead. James corrects that kind of thinking by exposing an attitude that he's observed in the Christian church. He reflects back to us a little phrase, God is tempting me. I wonder if you've ever thought it or said it. In a moment of desperation, have you thought, why is God tempting me like this? This thing is so hard to say no to. Well if you've been in that place like me then James corrects us and tells us our thinking was flawed. Look at verse 13. He grounds us in the nature of the pressures and the heat that come our way. Pressure and heat that are intended to form us into something beautiful and priceless. God sends us trials so that we can live out our love for him and obedience to his word. Look at verse 14. But we make them temptations. We make them things which take us away from Jesus. I want you to imagine that you're out and about and you see a beautiful man or a beautiful woman. Now, God is to be thanked for making beautiful people. I'm very thankful for that because I have a beautiful wife. That is a bonus for me. We should give God thanks. There is nothing evil or wrong about beauty. But if we look at that beautiful person... And we lust after them. That's not a godly desire. That is a desire to use and abuse that person, which springs from our hearts. God created the beauty, but we take it and do the wrong thing with it. When we see a good thing God has made, whether it's someone else's garden, or whether it's a beautiful car or a delicious meal, when we see these wonderful things that God has given people creativity to make and build... And we lust after them in our hearts. It is our desires and our attitudes that take and turn that good thing into a temptation. We use it as something which makes us sin. We make it into something that can take us away from God instead of towards him. It is from our hearts that it becomes a temptation. We're dragged away by our own evil desire. And we set our feet on a path which leads to death, not just physical, but eternal separation from God forever. In those moments, we reject his word and instead of holding fast to it, we chase after the desires of our hearts, which shows us some of the flaws and the imperfection in our faith. God intends these trials to help us grow in perseverance and endurance so that those of us who love him receive the wonderful crown of life that he's promised. But to persevere in trials We will need wisdom and faith, verses 5 and 6 tell us. Friends, if we fail the trial, if we fail to endure and persevere in Jesus' way, we can't blame God for that temptation. When we give in to temptation, it's because we let our desires drag us into sin, not because God has set us up to fail. Because of our sin, these tests, which are designed for our good, can lead to spiritual death. How do we know they're designed for our good? We'll look at verse 17. The God of light gives good and perfect gifts. In him there is no darkness, we're told in 1 John. The same God who spoke and created light is constant and unchanging. He isn't fickle and changeable. But here is grace at work. That even in our failure of tests and trials, God can take that mess and use it for his glory. If a genuine believer fails a test, we still love God, even if imperfectly, and we can repent and persevere, we can endure in our faith. If an unbeliever fails the tests of life, then God can use that failure to lead them to Christ as they recognize their brokenness and great need for salvation when they see Jesus revealed. The prophets call that a gift. They call it a gift of a new heart. Jesus calls it being born again from above. Paul calls it being part of a new creation and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And James calls it birth or rebirth through the Word, verse 18. By trusting in the gospel, believers become a kind of first fruits of all that God has created, we're told. We become the evidence of the work that God is doing in the lives of His people. We are the first and the best of His produce. He will show his faithfulness. Friends, he will care for us year by year as he cared for Israel in the wilderness. This is what the tests should teach us. That when we fail, when we give in to the heat and the pressure of life's trials and we buckle rather than trusting the word of God, our failure teaches us to turn to God for mercy and grace which is demonstrated in the atoning death of Jesus in our place. And then as we persevere with him in love, as we endure through the trials of life, we will receive the crown of life that he has promised. As James helps us to see the real nature of trials and tests versus our temptations, he also lays out three key tests for us which are constant and critical in the life of the true believer. James makes another observation, and this little book is full of them. It almost reads like wisdom literature. That some Christians are hearing the Bible every single week, taught, and it's in one ear and out the other. We hear the word read and taught, but it isn't put into practice in real life. That foolishness, he says, is like a man who goes to the mirror and he sees that his moustache is wild and out of control and he does nothing about it. He just carries on life as before. He's saying, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of it. If you see something wrong in your life reflected to you by God's word, then do something about it. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of it. Put it into action in your lives. First, he says, take control of your tongue. Verses 19 to 20 tell us to be quick to listen and slow to become angry. Why? But because I've learnt in my short life that when I use my one mouth faster than my two ears, the words that come out tend to do damage. I say things that I wish I'd never said. The tongue takes over and I cause harm. If I sit back and listen, it definitely helps to understand where the other person's coming from. It prevents the chance of me doing quite so much damage with my tongue. James is reminding us that the words we say matter. Now, angry words and gossip and lying, they all spring to mind right away. But in this book, James is going to go further as he unpacks what's taking control of our tongue looks like. Dan Doriani explains how James goes further in a really helpful way that's going to be on the screen. He warns against self-justifying speech. When tempted, no one should blame God, saying, God is tempting me. He criticizes those who flatter the rich and humiliate the poor. He condemns the careless speech that wishes well, but never lifts a hand to help. He questions the superficial claim, I have faith if no deeds confirm it. He deplores tongues that praise God one moment and curse people the next. He chides those who slander and judge their brothers. He condemns boastful plans as if we can do whatever we want. Our words can cause a world of trouble for the christian which betray our flaws and show our imperfections can't they and so we must bridle our tongues and control them as well as controlling our tongues we are to treat the poor generously we need to be doers of god's word when it comes to those who are disadvantaged in our world our god has a special concern for the poor those who oppress the poor are called out for special criticisms in his word God longs for his people to care for the poor who he talks about here as widows and orphans. I don't think we realise just how insane James's exhortation sounds. It doesn't surprise us that this is God's expectation in our world, does it? To look after people who are struggling. But Professor Edwin Judge reminds us that in the classical world of Greece and Rome, it was regarded as philosophically illogical, And positively immoral to focus one's care and attention on the weak and poor of society. And now everyone in the West thinks the opposite. Praise God. Christianity turned the world upside down. We are meant to open our wallets and our homes and our lives to those who are poor without preference without expectation of getting something back or being owed a debt, as an expression of our love for Jesus. James also calls on us to keep ourselves free from being polluted by the world. We are to swim against the tide of our culture. Our world is going to encourage us and permit us to do things which go against God's word. It's going to promote thoughts and ideas and behaviors which deny God's goodness. How crazy is it to keep the Sabbath holy? We choose to be here on a Sunday morning with this bunch of weirdos over being at sport or coffee or shopping or family time or a concert or a sleep. And there are other things that our world finds much more attractive we could be doing than hanging out here in this building. How crazy is it to honor your mother and father? We live in a world that says your parents don't really want the best for you anymore. Watch a Disney movie that was produced over the last three years and track that theme. Your parents and your family are oppressing you. They don't understand you and your identity. Then imagine living in a world where we're told that our parents have stuffed up the housing market and the planet for us. Well, Christians are told to respect our parents, to honor our mother and father, to care for them, to speak kindly of them, to be generous and gracious towards them. That is countercultural in the world we live in. Or insist that God created everything and watch people scoff at you. They think you're pretty weird if you say that. Now, we could be here all day listing ways that our world wants to change our thinking, where it wants to mold and fashion us after its own patterns. And James says, watch it, be alert know what the world is thinking, and know who Jesus calls you to be. Endure in his way. The word which brings life is meant to shape and change our lives, verse 26, if we consider ourselves religious. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, but we don't tame our tongues, we don't care for the poor, and we don't keep ourselves free from the contaminating influences of our world then our claims of faith are worthless. We're Christians who are full of hot air. We say one thing, but we do another. And when it comes to the ultimate test of being examined, of sitting under the eye of the master jeweller, it will be obvious that our faith isn't a precious diamond, but it's a fake. Here are the tests of true faith, but like a diamond, They're not cut, or clarity, or colour, or carrot. The true tests for us are whether we are able to tame our tongue, whether we treat the poor generously and keep ourselves from being polluted by the world around us. Now, when we hear those tests, friends, as we read James, we know that we fail, don't we? When we are tested, when we are examined, our flaws are exposed. And at this point in the message, you can be feeling pretty low. How on earth can I ever endure? Because I know my weakness and my brokenness. As we read James and encounter about a third of it giving us imperative instructions about how to be doers of the word, the concrete actions that we should be taking as people who are tested, we can feel pretty despondent. We feel like our faith is a lump of coal, not a stunning, precious gem. How can we ever meet the standard that James holds up for us? Church, don't be tempted to give up. Don't misunderstand being a doer of the word. This isn't advocating for an endless striving. James, the brother of Jesus, knows the gospel of grace. He understands the freedom that it brings to believers. Look at verse 17. He understands the freedom it brings when we fail these tests and give in to temptations. In those moments, we can humble ourselves. And we can seek the wisdom which comes from above, acknowledging our great need for Jesus, whose own brother called him Lord and became his servant. When we forget our flaws like those fools who gaze in the mirror and just carry on without correction there is a place we can turn verse 17 we turn to the word which gives us rebirth new life regeneration in the lord jesus right through this book james offers observations about the world and how christ's people live in it and he's pretty real about our failures And so he points us to where Jesus is perfectly revealed in the scriptures. So that we can be reborn, so that we can be given new hearts, so that we can be refreshed by the Spirit, encouraged by gospel truth, and encouraged to grow in Christ's likeness as we look at him, not ourselves. James scopes the tests and the trials that we are going to face, so that we can count them as pure joy. They are pure joy because when we fail them, some turn to Jesus for the first time, and others who already know him commit their lives to him afresh. The trials help to form something beautiful and valuable and marvelous in us a jewel of great value, better than any diamond this world can offer a quiet, humble dependency in Jesus, in all of our weaknesses in all of our flaws, in all of our imperfections. Because he will be our strength, our perfecter and our hope if we humbly accept the word which is planted in us, the word which can save us. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you that in your grace, in the midst of the trials and the pressures of this life, in the midst of our failures, Your word gives us new life that is mind-blowing. Thank you that, Jesus, you are perfectly revealed to us in the word. And that as we see you and accept you as Lord, you take and change us into something marvellous and beautiful, even through the trials, the heat, the pressures of life. Lord, would you please do that work in us? Would you make us into something beautiful, even though we are mucky and messy? Would you help us to endure as we seek your wisdom? so that we might glorify you on the day of your return. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa you can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback you can touch base with me zane at richmondparish.nz Thanks so much for listening